0: Any follower of C-SPAN knows the name Harold Holzer, a lifelong aficionado and chronicler of Abraham Lincoln. He has either written or edited 54 books on America's 16th president. President Lincoln has been Mr. Holzer's avocation over these many years, while he maintained full-time work and responsibilities for 23 of those years as Senior Vice President for Public Affairs at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. He currently serves as director of Hunter College's Roosevelt House Public Policy Institute. Recently, he talked about his favorite pastime, Mr. Lincoln, before an audience at Purdue University. Students were able to ask many questions about Mr. Lincoln and how the media has treated some of the other 45 presidents in our country's history. I have not given Harold any idea what kind of questions we're going to ask. And we have a lot of students and others in the audience that I want to go to early. So I'm going to ask him the first question to start this off. Why don't people know that Abraham Lincoln spent a lot of time in Indiana?
1: (laughs) Because I don't want to criticize Indiana, but maybe Kentucky and Illinois spend more time promoting themselves as lands of Lincoln. He spent a third of his life in Indiana, came of age in Indiana, buried his mother, literally, in Indiana, lost his only sibling in Indiana. He said the soil of Indiana made him tall. So there's a lot to say. We've got to keep
0: the Indiana thing going for a little sure, bit sure. longer. When did he come to the state and why?
1: So he came in um, when he was seven, so that's 18... 18- 16. Uh, and he came because his father was a terrible business person and he had to secure land titles in Kentucky. And he found out that this, the cabin and the land he owned in Kentucky did not have a secure title. So we've heard from relatives that the soil in Indiana is great. And so Lincoln said, we, we moved because of land title issues and partly because of slavery. Lincoln's father was anti-slavery, probably for the wrong reasons. He was kind of jealous that he couldn't afford to participate in that institution. So he wanted to go to a free state where everybody could be, have equal you know, access to opportunity. And that's why they chose Indiana. It was southern Indiana. Um, so he was seven when he got here. And his first memories were really here.
0: So during those 14 years, what changed in his life?
1: Well, I guess the loss of his mother was the biggest thing, for sure. Um, She died in something of a mini-pandemic. There was an explosion of a poisonous plant called snake root, and cows would would eat the snake root, and then they would give poison milk. And some people were susceptible to the poison, and others weren't. His mother was susceptible, and it was apparently a really brutal and agonizing death. And they're in a one-room cabin in Indiana and they see it. He was eight and a half years old. Um, that was the great loss of his life, obviously. And But the great gain was to come soon thereafter. His father left Lincoln and his sister alone for months when he was just nine years old. And he went back to Kentucky because he'd heard that a woman that he'd liked had lost her husband. So he we went a courtin', I guess. I mean, you, if there was a neighbor today, you would report the neighbor to Child Protective Services. He, he found the woman, Sarah Johnston. He said, we might as well get hitched. She said, okay. Uh, she had children. She needed a husband. Lincoln, Thomas Lincoln, Lincoln's father, paid her debts, took her back to Indiana, and she got hit there. She found these two children who she said looked like wild beasts. They hadn't bathed, they hadn't cut their hair, and she took care of them. She mothered them. She brought furniture. She brought books. Lincoln had never had books. And he immediately gravitated to this, this new source of knowledge and this inspiring woman who he just adored. And the feeling was mutual. So he got a wonderful, wonderful stepmother out of it. And then, you know, did all the things that boys did, things that he later hated, like hunting and torturing turtles, things like that. But, and he said it was a wild, wild region, untamed. So it was remote, a little frightening, howls of wolves and roars of bears in the night. And he, this this state is where he had an axe, he said, an axe was put into my hands for the first, for the first time. From then, my enemy uh, were trees, logs, and grubs. And, you know, the manual labor made him a pretty robust physical specimen as well. And he credited Indiana. Also, his first schools, uh, his first and only schooling. He only spent a year in school altogether. And all of the teachers were itinerants who wandered through Spencer County, Indiana, and set up shop for a month or two, and that's the kind of schools that he went to. He made fun of the teachers, but at least he learned to learn in Indiana.
0: If he were to walk in here right now, he might, you never know. Uh, What's the first thing you'd ask him?
1: So I've always said, and people say I'm wasting my opportunity, I want to know what it it was with him and his father. historiographically, we're now going back, if some of you have seen some of the recent documentaries about Lincoln, we seem to be moving back to the idea that, oh, his father wasn't that bad. He's been given, you know, the role of his enemy. He wanted young Abe to work on the farm. He didn't want him to read and waste his time. Farmers had a lot of kids in those days, so they could have the girls do kitchen work and the boys do farm work. And Lincoln was the only boy. He had a brother who died in infancy, the younger brother, so his father needed him to work. So now the theory is, oh, his father wasn't that bad. Lincoln did not go to his deathbed and did not go to his funeral. And even though he promised his stepmother on the last day he saw her, in, right before he went off for his inauguration, she said, promise you'll build a grave, a gravestone for your father. And he said, I promise. So that's the one promise honest Abe didn 't keep, and there 's something there that i can 't quite get at. I, I think young people should forgive their parents. I mean, when I was their age i didn 't forgive my parents. but I think people should forgive their parents, uh, give them, cut them some slack, but i 'd like to know what it was that caused this deep alienation, and by the way, could have made him an indifferent father or you know father who believed in capital punishment, not capital punishment, corporal punishment. <laughs> as Thomas Lincoln did. Um, But Abraham and Mary Lincoln were very indulgent parents. They let their kids run wild, to the consternation of everybody.
0: What would be your second question?
1: (laughs) Okay, Mr. Lincoln, um, your reputation has taken a battering in recent years on the subject of race. We know you signed the Emancipation Proclamation. But uh, people have unearthed these quotes you made, you, you uttered, in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and when a delegation of free African Americans visited the White House in 1862. Um, they're pretty rough. Uh, they don't stand the test of time. So did you foresee that there would ultimately be a biracial society in the United States? Or is it something you could never have fathomed? Which is why you flirted with the idea of voluntary colonization for for a long time. So I would ask him about race. But you know, he was a 19th century man. He's not a 21st century man. But I do believe he thought black lives mattered because he did not want black lives and black souls and black hands to perform labor that was uncompensated. I think that means that black lives matter as much as anybody's life.
0: We're gonna to go to students and others in the audience. Uh, I don't know whether you all know this, but Purdue has some fabulous students. And uh, I'm gonna call on Grace Hassler. Students are sitting along the side to ask the first question and we need the microphone. There you are, Grace. Where is the microphone? Uh, right over there, please come up to it. and. Fire away. Make it tough.
1: You've gone very easy on me so far. So far. I can't believe they made me work
2: to come to the microphone. I thought they'd, you know, walk it to me. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh anyway, as we're starting to have some of these conversations about your topic of expertise, which seems to be Lincoln, uh, I was looking at some of your books and one that you recently published in August of last year talks about the power of the press and the presidency and how those two go together. So my question was, I think in that book you explore it a bit more. But when was it that people started to realize that the relationship, I mean, maybe even some specific examples with Lincoln, that that relationship existed and it was important to civic duty?
1: It's a great question. You've never asked a good question like that. That's a really good question. (laughs) That's why I call it on grace. Um, Well, I I, I say in my book, um, who was the first president to complain about fake news? And the answer is the first president. Uh, George Washington used the expression false news, but he believed the press was too critical, attacked him personally, and that was the beginning of the political party press, Federalist and Democratic, then Jackson and anti-Jackson, and in the Lincoln era, Republican and Democratic newspapers. So everything was seen through a political lens. Some of us who look at... um, MSNBC and Fox now and don't like what the others are doing and won't watch the other. It's the same problem in the Lincoln era. So people were deeply aware uh, way before Lincoln. I mean, John Adams, for example, signed a law in defiance of the First Amendment that made it a federal crime to to criticize or mock the president. Just nobody, and, and it wasn't declared unconstitutional. Because all the federal judges and all the Supreme Court members were members of his own party. Because only Washington and Adams had served. It's, a, it's extraordinary. By the time Lincoln is president, they are made more aware of the, the competition or the disagreements because the Lincoln administration and army jailed nearly 200 editors in, during the Civil War, shut down newspapers, Journalists in prison That's a whole separate, you know, conflict and controversy. But so I would say they became aware of it in Washington, at the end of Washington's first term, and the, not to go on too long, but the problem then is the same problem as now, And nobody articulates this better than Brian Lamb as he did last night in Delphi, which is that our, people tend to watch only the things they already agree with. And in Lincoln's time, the Republicans read the Republican press, the Democrats read the Democratic press, and Southerners read pro-slavery, anti-Union press. So, of course, there's conflict when no one hears about the other side. Grace, I meandered a bit, but I hope that answers.
0: Chevelle, where are you? There she is. Another graduating senior. We're going to lose the best.
2: Um, So I'm currently taking a class in the Civil War, and I'm learning a lot of new things about Lincoln. Um, He was very steadfast in his beliefs, but he also was pretty flexible in certain ones, such as his movement from conciliation to pragmatism. And I'm wondering, are there any beliefs or positions he had that he was more flexible on or that he was steadfast on that you were surprised by or didn't expect?
1: Well, he was he was steadfast on his duty before the constitution to preserve protect and defend the union he never wavered from that and the union the idea of the union which we don't think about that much today had a sacredness to him the union of the states the acceptance of the compact of being together in this great experiment um was inviolable um and he didn't think there was any possibility of anyone leaving because they disagreed. Got into trouble in Indiana, in Indianapolis, for taking that rather serious precept too lightly. We can get to that. And the flexibility is all on race and slavery. That's what's remarkable about him. He's, he's really a Southerner. As Frederick Douglass said, what was remarkable about Lincoln was that he was a southern white. you know, Kentucky, southern Indiana, south-central Illinois. Um, he could have held and retained prejudices that were common in his time. But he morphed from just saying he was opposed to the expansion of slavery to saying slavery must die. When the war ends, there cannot be any way that the institution of slavery can exist in this country. And then... I always say that in his last speech, he didn't know it was going to be his last speech, and we're coming up to the anniversary of this moment, April 11th um, in 1865. He spoke for the first time about giving black men, especially veterans, the right to vote. And John Wilkes Booth was in the crowd that day on the White House lawn, and he turned to one of his comrades and said, that means... Negro equality, and he didn't use the word negro, as you can imagine. Um, That's the last speech he'll ever make. Now I'll put him through. So in a sense, he died for that evolution in his thinking.
0: Sunil. Hi. Um, Given
2: the many challenges that our generation faces in the next coming decades, what can young Americans do to preserve the legacy of Lincoln in American politics, civics, and culture?
1: I mean, Lincoln was part of a young generation once that saw a bit of hopelessness in the divisiveness that was afflicting the country. And it's true that it wasn't cured before there were a lot of sacrifices, which is not the way we want to go to cure our problems today. But where I think Lincoln sets an enviable example for people is the way he lived the American dream and articulated it. I mean, even though it sounds corny to many people today, Abraham Lincoln rose from the humblest beginnings. Look at the way he described his hardscrabble Indiana childhood. I mean, he loved it in retrospect, but it was hard. And he was in the middle of nowhere down in Spencer County, and he somehow educated his way, read his way, became an activist as they understood it in the early part of the 19th century, and not only bettered himself, but obviously went literally from, you know, the cliche log cabin to to the White House. But he also left the words to inspire you and every generation. Um, you know, the idea that every person should have an equal chance in the race of life. That's what he fought for. That's what he was all about. And those those speeches he made toward the end of his life were, you know, it's, it's their sacred American gospel. Uh, Just beautiful, beautiful writing. And um, so he lived the American dream and articulated it.
0: How many times was he defeated for any kind of office?
1: He said, he liked to say, I've only been defeated once by a direct vote of the people, which is true. It was first election, For the state legislature and he was off fighting uh, an Indian war. We didn't see any action but he was enrolled you know in the uh, state militia so he didn't campaign and he won his own town of New Salem like something like 270 to 3 but he lost the legislative district and he was never again he was never defeated after that because he didn't really run against Stephen Douglas Democrats and Republicans ran for the legislature, and the legislature elected the senators. He didn't lose for vice president. He didn't even know his name was being put up. So he won four legislative elections. He lost another Senate race before the Lincoln-Douglas debates, but again, it was legislative wrangling and two presidential elections. So he would say, just the first time, and I wasn't paying attention.
0: <laughs> Who has a question? let just step up to the microphone. Go ahead. Anybody. Yeah. Shreya, yeah. That's fine. Go ahead. Be sure to give us your name. I can't see. And my, my memory's bad. Go ahead.
2: Hi, I'm Celia Parker. Um, so I was reading your book, um, The Presidents Versus the Press. And you talk a lot about how Lincoln harnessed the media and his
1: pre-presidential campaigns to kind of gain traction. And then he kind of changed the way that the media framed the president. And he was, you know, the first... Um, newspaper publisher to become president, and then he
2: continued to have a really strong grasp on the media in his sec- during his terms. Um, and then you also talked about how Trump revolutionized the way that candidates use media by using Twitter and other means to gain notoriety. So do you think that Lincoln and Trump are comparable, you know, in their respective times with their respective resources in their usage of media to
1: further their own campaigns? Or would you say that one was more effective than the other? Yikes. Sorry. (laughs) Fabulous. This is the... See? Fabulous. You're training a new generation of Brian I didn't train this lady. No. The center. (laughs) Yes. It's a good question. So in my book, I do say the presidents who mastered the technology of new media were the most impactful and the most successful. And Lincoln, um, not only getting... um, shorthand reporters to transcribe the Lincoln-Douglas debates. He wasn't, This is a really good point that he was a newspaper publisher, even though it was a German-language newspaper and he couldn't read German. Um, he bought it so it could support him and win German votes. Uh, anybody has a copy of the Illinois Staats Einzeiger? It's the most valuable Lincoln, Re- no one has a copy of this newspaper. It, just, it was published for almost a year, and not one copy has survived. Just If there's a collector out there, um, let's make a deal. Um, (laughs) Not only Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, in whose home I have the privilege of working, um, mastered the new network of radio. Uh, Gave his first fireside chat from two floors below where my office is. Doesn't count because he wasn't president, but then, you know, tremendously impactful radio appearances. John Kennedy and television news conferences, Barack Obama and the internet, and Donald Trump. Yeah, he was a genius about communications. Now he's just—they just keep him off uh, Twitter and Instagram. But he—that was a pretty, pretty brilliant thing he did um, to use the media. And you and I have talked about this over the years. Every day, for four years, well, five years if you count the campaign, Donald Trump was smart enough to tweet early in the morning, and then up until afternoon, CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News did nothing but comment on his tweets. So he dominated every other aspect of the news by tweeting. I think that's pretty ingenious. It's scary that we all fell for that. I mean, it's not being political, but then nobody tried to cover real news. They would just cover... Let his tweets be the news of the day.
0: Over on this side. Somebody have a question you're ready with? Yeah. Maddie? Okay, go ahead. No, go ahead. And we'll get Maddie later. Uh,
2: Hello, my name is James Shelton. Brian, we've met a few times on Zoom, so it's good to finally see you in person. Uh, In a class recently, I was studying um, Lincoln. uh, um, One of the first executive orders he signed after the war broke out was he Um, got rid of habeas corpus. Uh, He suspended it for a period of time, basically allowing uh, military courts to try citizens for treason. And um, it just seemed really out of character uh, from what I know about Lincoln already. So I was hoping you could maybe speak to that a bit more because it's something I didn't know about before I took this class.
1: Yeah, I mean, he uh, suspended the writ. He cracked down on the press in all the border states. And the, the All the border states that were threatening to leave the union after the original seven did. He did not want Kentucky out. He didn't want Missouri out. He didn't want Maryland out because that would have isolated Washington, D.C. And that was the impetus for the first suspension of the writ. Don't let the legislature meet to discuss suspension. John Merriman, this agitator who's threatened to blow up a bridge, put him in jail. Chief Justice says, bring him up. On charges or free him and Lincoln says I'm not paying attention to the chief justice anymore he may be a Marylander he may be sitting in circuit in Maryland but ignore him and if he and if he insists on producing the body of Merriman right that's what habeas corpus means arrest the chief justice he absolutely thought the preservation of the union and the threat of secession superseded all and you may think it's out of character but it's actually he kept he kept that to that principle for the entire war and he he justified it by saying um you would never you would never you could amputate a limb to save a body and he was amputating the limb of free speech free press and habeas corpus to save the body politic the other choice was to kill the body to save a limb and that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work that way. But you're right. You've identified the big remaining controversy. I mean, it's not the only one, but it's the big controversy that people discuss. Was he within his rights? Now, that the right of suspension belongs not specifically, but implicitly to Congress because it's in the congressional section. And it says uh, the privileges of the writ of habeas corpus may be suspended in times of rebellion. So it was surely you know, justifiable constitutionally, but it's not his right. So he just kept Congress home. You know, he didn't call a special session until July 4th. Um, The war broke out on April, whatever, 10th, 15th. And he said, you know, I don't want them here to muck up the works. By the time Congress came back into session, he'd already called for volunteers. He'd already committed money that he didn't have to fight a war, and he'd suspended the writ. So the union, the union, the union justified everything to
0: him. Oh, during the years that Harold has dealt with Abraham Lincoln, he's also had a full-time job somewhere else. Quickly, please tell the audience your first job in life.
1: My first job, right out of college, because I didn't go to graduate school. Don't follow my path. It's not You, could do, you all should go to grad school. My first job was at a – I wanted to be a journalist. And um, I had an opportunity to join a weekly newspaper on the west side of Manhattan. I met a young man today, and I forgot to tell him this. He lives on a block from where my first job was. Um, There he is. My first job was 2000 Broadway. You know the building? It was a supermarket in those days with a newspaper on top of it. Um, Pretty creepy place, actually. So that was my first job. And... The, the publisher never paid us. Um, Probably pretty smart. So everybody, <laughs> all these exalted guys and women who were, had been editors all over the country and came to this great experiment, which was supposed to be a black and white newspaper, not just printing, but Harlem and the west side of Manhattan. Uh, very liberal. Um, and, um, but he didn't pay these guys, so they left. And that left me. And I hired my wife to work with me. It was fun. She wasn't even my wife. She was just my girlfriend. And we worked together. And by the way, the publisher, this is like full cycle. The publisher was married to uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt's granddaughter. And she remembers early days in Roosevelt House, where I work now. And so I've come full cycle. Who owns Roosevelt House? Hunter College of the City University. FDR sold it to Hunter College. Didn't give it. But he sold an east side of Manhattan townhouse for $50,000. The real estate deal of the century. I
0: have a question for you that you hate.
1: And yet, you're going to you, you
0: Now, what's the way he's, you know, he's a very clever PR type guy. What's the way he answers this question? What's the job in your lifetime that you like the most? <laughs>
1: You know, I really like them all. Oh, my God. Listen. No, I did. (laughs) Uh, You said in Delphi, do something you love. I've had a great succession of jobs. Um, My boss, when I was working with Edith, he had worked with his wife at the New York Herald Tribune, which her father owned. Her stepfather owned the (laughs) New York Herald Tribune. So he married the boss's daughter. Um, He said, You know, I worked with Kate. If you get a chance, you're going to look back on this as the most fun because you get to work with your. Fiance, wife, and he's right. But I also worked for public television. I love that. I worked in politics and government. I love that. And, um, and the Metrop- But the Metropolitan Museum of Art is probably my true love. 23 years there. And, uh, but I like Rose. House. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, typical though. Anyway, uh, Maddie, why don't you get to the
0: mic? And, but let's, Andy, because it'll take her a little bit. Go ahead and ask a question, and we'll go to Maddie.
2: Hello, Mr. Holzer. I'm sorry. Oh, you're fine. Uh, My name is Andy. um, And speaking of other jobs, I recently learned that you were the lead historical consultant on the film Lincoln, uh, the the Steven Spielberg one. Um, And I wanted to hear a little bit more about that experience, as well as if there were any falsehoods or historical liberties that were taken uh, with this wonderful film that the audience should be aware of
1: well it was it was fun even though um they reneged on my deal i was fun because i got to work with tony kushner uh, on his work you know fact checking his script and hanging out with him and he's you know just an absolute genius um brilliant funny um but there were lots of things in the script that i i still have the script with all the um what do you call them the yellow things post-its um (laughs) But, I was, but my payoff, you know, you don't get paid to be a historical consultant. They said, well, we'll invite you to Richmond to be on set. You can come stay in the Jefferson Hotel, which is the great Richmond Hotel, hang out with Daniel Day-Lewis and Sally Field. So I said, that sounds good. So I had my, got my ticket, and I got a call from, uh, from Tony Kushner. Harold, um, they don't want you on the set. I said... I said, "My bag is packed. Oh, you can't come." Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis doesn't want any more modern bearded people on the set. <laughs> I would add an adjective, but I'm not going to. He doesn't like being out of. He doesn't like modern people. And Spielberg has got a beard and a baseball hat, and Tony Kushner has a beard. Enough. He doesn't want any more New Yorkers or Californians with beards. So I didn't. I didn't get to go. I met Daniel Day-Lewis later. He said. Mr. Holzer, you've been with me every step of the way. I said, not that I noticed. <laughs> <laughs> so I get a, I get a, The big mistake in Tony Kushner's script was the idea that... When, it's not so tragic. When they call the roll for the 13th Amendment, how many people have seen the film? Oh, good, a lot. They call the roll, yes for the 13th Amendment or no. We'll start with a delegation from Connecticut. So I said to Tony, that's not the way the House of Representatives worked. I worked for a congresswoman, her name started with A. I know it's alphabetical, it's not by state. You're confusing it with a political convention. How does the great state of Connecticut vote? So he actually slithered off my couch and fell on the floor. That's how upset he was. But he called me from Richmond and he said, I have to tell you, Stephen doesn't like your idea. <laughs> I said, is that my idea? <laughs> i'm just telling you it's the way it went he said well there's no it's the dramatic arc is no good if you do that i said do what you want okay um uh, <laughs> i went with him to chicago to do a promotion for the film and he gets a call from maureen dowd at of the new york times you, i mean she's a pretty powerful journalist you don't want to get a call from maureen <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> on a thursday and she said Congressman from Connecticut just said that your film says that Connecticut voted three to two for the amendment. There were no two people who voted against it. And he's, he wants your film banned <laughs> in Connecticut. He'd offered to send a free um, DVD to every high school in the country, which is very generous. So this guy made a splash. He got to be on Meet the Press by denouncing the film. And Maureen Dowd wanted him to comment. I, I didn't say I told you so. But he actually told her. And it was in the New York Times I should have listened to Harold and and he I think he lost the Oscar because of that flare-up and he lost it to Argo how many people remember Argo okay you know that chase down the runway never happened but you can't make mistakes with Lincoln too many people notice but it was fun and I you know I got to do a lot of promotional things we got sent to South America to promote the movie. We, State Department sent us to Argentina. I had my own translator, bodyguard, driver, van. That was cool. <laughs> and I got to tell Daniel Day-Lewis off.
0: <laughs> you, you will notice that Harold has led a very boring life. Maddie. <laughs> oh,
2: forget about me, Brian. Um, my question is a little abstract, so if you wouldn't mind bearing with me. It's been really interesting to hear in your little like, highlight reel, and you talk about uh, huh. Lincoln's love of literature, but also in the video talking about how he was willing to pose for artists and sculptors, etc. I'm wondering if he read a lot of fiction, and if you think that influenced his leadership styles in a way that was different from maybe other presidents or
1: civic leaders that we've had. That's a great question. He read Shakespeare long before he became a theater aficionado. So I think that counts for reading fiction, right? He loved the histories, he loved the tragedies. He was so conversant with them that he could recite um, soliloquies. And he did to artists, he talked about artists. But there's no record that he ever read any novel. And um, even Uncle Tom's Cabin, which I find almost unfathomable. It was such a big news you know, story in the 1850s. And we know that when he was president, he checked out from the Library of Congress a book called, it was like a nonfiction guide to Uncle Tom's Cabin, like discussing who these characters, who Simon Legree and who Uncle Tom all represented in fact. Um, And Harriet Beecher still wrote it to justify, it's like a backup to her fictional account. And he, we, so we know he took that out, but he didn't read novels for some reason. But Shakespeare and poetry, yes, loved Robert Burns, loved um, a Maudlin poem um, called Oh, Why Should the Spirit of Mortal Be Proud?" and recited it at the drop of a hat, used it in a eulogy to was it Henry Clay or I think Zachary Taylor, and he recited it so often that it was attributed to him after a while. And he wrote poetry, right Right here in Indiana. He wrote, came back here in 1844 to campaign for Henry Clay for president in, um, um, I'm trying to think of the town. I will think of it. But he campaigned here in Indiana and he had a prosaic and a poetical reaction. The prosaic reaction to Indiana was, when I was a kid, you, it took hours to get anywhere on these awful roads, but I was for internal improvements, which is what they called infrastructure in those days. Henry Clay is for infrastructure, and now it only takes six hours to go ten miles, and what an improvement. So he really, that was his prosaic reaction to Indiana. But he was, he was, he was kind of depressed, coming back and seeing his mother's grave. His sister had died in childbirth, and he was vicious to his brother-in-law, blamed his brother-in-law. So it's not, it's, you can see the psychology, but um, he was very close to his sister. He visited her grave and he wrote a, a poem about coming back to Indiana. He said, My, I, I felt poetical when I was here, even though I may not have succeeded in the poetry.
0: Chad, where are you? Oh, there you are. Question.
2: Hi, Mr. Holzer, thanks for coming. Um, <laughs> I recently read your book, Presidents versus the Press, which has come up already, and in many of the profiles you did on the presidents, you explain how many of them explicitly state that they look up to Lincoln or they hold him as an idol of theirs. And I was wondering if you could talk about why you think so many presidents from each party still do that, what have they to get out of that, and do they live up to it?
1: It is a, an extraordinary phenomenon. And I've I've been able to do research on this. Originally, only Republicans could lay claim to Lincoln. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was a big Lincoln admirer. He sort of, in fighting with Theodore Roosevelt and William Howard Taft in 1912, each of them decided that fighting for the mantle of Lincoln was going to be part of their campaign. Taft was supported by Lincoln's son. So his way of getting right with Lincoln was to go up to Vermont and play golf with Lincoln's son. Um, sort of a gilded age way of identifying with Lincoln. Um, T.R. loved Lincoln. Um, his Secretary of State had been Lincoln's private secretary, so he felt deeply connected. And his father had, been, had known Lincoln, got out of the draft by taking advantage of the, the monetary exclusion in the first draft bill. He had seen Lincoln's funeral as a little boy. It's a photograph Uh, the New York City funeral, with two little boys on the third floor leaning out of a window. God, it's scary. And that's Theodore Roosevelt and his brother Kermit watching the funeral in New York City. But FDR made a real attempt to woo African Americans to the Democratic Party. And he thought that the way to do it was to seize Lincoln as part of Democratic memory, not Republican memory. There are records of his saying that. And although it's hard to believe, FDR did not win the black vote in 1932. That's how strong African-American voter affiliation was with the party of Lincoln. But in 1936, the Democrats had won the black vote, and it's 85 years. So he did it through Lincoln. So why did they do it? Because he was the greatest president. And I've gotten to speak to presidents. They all identify very strongly, even for the most arcane reasons. With Abraham Lincoln, but they all—I mean, I never spoke. I, I've met Donald Trump, but I never, you know, before he was president. I never talked to him about Lincoln, but all the others—just um, intense recognition, mostly of the suffering of the presidency, how hard it is. Can I tell a, a quick story about? No. <laughs> of course. About President, first President Bush. Um, we did a uh, sam waterston and i did a reading um in at for the de- not the dedication but the origins of the george hw bush presidential library in houston it was on a palm sunday i remember that a, and we had a wonderful time with the bushes um, and we did the reading i made myself part of the script because i wrote the script so i got to d- read to show images of Lincoln, and Waterston recreated the speeches. And after the event, President Bush came up, and he was crying. And I said, um, he was just, he couldn't have been more grateful. I said, Mr. President, what part, what, what speech affected you this way? And I wondered, is it the Gettysburg Address? Is it the second inaugural? He said, Lincolns, farewell to Springfield. And I thought, well, that's a beautiful speech, but it's not the end of the performance. And I said, may I ask you why? And he said, because Lincoln said on leaving Springfield, here my children have been born and one lies buried. And no one else but Lincoln and I know what it's like to leave your city behind and go to the presidency and leave your child's grave, as he did. That moved me very much, and it made me realize again that the people find unexpected connections to Lincoln and his suffering. I think it helps them get through the presidency. And those who don't pay attention should. I know President Biden is a Lincoln aficionado. I don't know him, but he, he's, he meets with, occasionally with Doris Goodwin and with um, Ron Chernow and with Robert Caro um, and uh, uh, John Meacham. So, he gets a good background on the presidency, and he's interested in the history.
0: Who has a question over here? One of the students. Shreya, go ahead. Um,
1: So,
2: my name is Shreya, and you wrote the book, The War for Public Opinion – oh, sorry, Lincoln and the Press, The War for Public Opinion, and you also worked on the Steven Spielberg movie, Lincoln. So do you think that Hollywood plays any role in this war for public opinion? And if you think it does, should it shoulder any responsibility? (laughs)
1: Well, they certainly have been part of the making of the Lincoln reputation. And I point to 1939. Um, 1939 was a watershed year in the Lincoln image. Because that year, Marian Anderson sang in front of the Lincoln Memorial on Easter Sunday. I don't know if you know the story. She was the great black opera singer of her day and she had booked uh the daughters of the american revolution what is it called constitution hall in in near the white house and when they realized they had accidentally booked a black singer they said you can't sing here it's segregated and eleanor roosevelt told the secretary of the interior why not have her sing at the lincoln memorial and she sang my country tis of thee and other things and it was broadcast nationally on radio. There was something like fifty or 60,000 people on the mall, fully integrated crowd, unlike the dedication of the memorial. And that transformed that image. That same year Mr. Smith goes, goes to Washington, came out, the Frank Capra movie with James Stewart. And the scene in which the idealistic young senator, Jefferson Smith, goes to the Lincoln Memorial for inspiration, and here's a little boy, read the Gettysburg Address inscribed on the wall, and you they cut to different people, including a a, a black man in tears listening to the aspirational words, had a tremendous impact. The very next year the John Ford movie, Young Mr. Lincoln, comes out. And um, it too, you know, presents this idealistic young attorney fighting for justice and being humorous and all the virtues. So Lincoln becomes a hero of the New Deal era and the run-up to World War II. So, responsibility. I think the the Spielberg movie was not simplistic. I think it showed a complex Lincoln being a real politician, um, using politics for a virtuous cause, but real rough and tumble, maybe even with money involved, for a virtuous result. I hope that answers the question. But I, th- this provides an opportunity for a segue, because I purposely mentioned the Lincoln Memorial, which will be 100 years old on May 30th, and there's going to be a centennial observation, observance, not observation. Um, C-SPAN will be covering the day before, on Saturday before the Sunday, the 21st, live from the mall. I don't even know if you know that. Thank you. Well, you're the executive chairman.
0: Well, the best thing about this is that there will be 20 Purdue students coming to Washington for two weeks under Andrea Langrish's leadership, my friend. And he's going to, this man is going to go to the memorial with us so that everybody can have a firsthand account of what that memorial is all about. Who's got Student? Yes, sir. Next question. Somebody want to stand at the mic over here? Just go on, get up there, and, and we'll... Moving on. Yes. Sorry,
2: thank you for your time. My name is Alex Brophy. Just a quick question. Did you also consult on Abraham Lincoln, Vampire
1: Slayer? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, really. <laughs> they came to me and asked me about the sets and whether what kind of pen Lincoln used. This is really important stuff. Um, and um, would he use a feathered quill? And I said, absolutely not. Steel pens. That was my... They all come, like, with one question. I mean, Spielberg was different. I thought that was a pretty cool movie. Why did people, why were people so determined to maintain slavery? And that that was the answer. They were monsters.
2: To my embarrassment, I have a real question. I didn't expect an answer on that one. I know. You got another one? Yeah, if I may. Um, I feel as though in today's society we're lacking truly great orders. And maybe that's because social media signs a light on everyone's voice. but I feel like we as a society revere Barack Obama, regardless of his presidency, for his ability to communicate. So do you feel that in today's society, with Lincoln's ability to communicate, would he be revered more for the actions that he completed in his presidency, or would he still be remembered as that great speaker?
1: It's a great question. I think it has to be a combination. And Lincoln was a great communicator, but remember, for all of the romance of Lincoln as a homespun orator, if he was speaking here, he would probably be heard in the back because it's a fairly compact auditorium. But when he spoke at the Lincoln-Douglas debates, I can't imagine that 15,000 people heard him in Freeport. He just didn't have the range for it. He could be heard, but he had a kind of a tinny voice and it took a while to warm up. If you read the reports about his Cooper Union address, it took 10 minutes. It always took him 10 minutes, Uh, which is why it probably didn't work with the Gettysburg address because it was only three minutes. The second inaugural was only eight, nine minutes. So he needed 10 minutes to wind up. But yeah, I still think great oratory matters. Look at how people are riveted to President Zelensky. And he's mostly not speaking English, but he has a wonderfully, well, he's a performer. He has a, a resonant voice and an impassioned expression. And he somehow communicates people, even if he's speaking through a translator. People, And it's also a matter of rising to the occasion, I think. Um, but Obama is just a gift, gifted, gifted communicator, as you say. Thank you. Sure. Right. Mine isn't inc- as quite a fun of a question. Um, We've spoken a little bit about Lincoln's relationship with African Americans and with slavery and essentially ending slavery. Um, And several months ago, Kenneth Feinberg visited Purdue and there was a student who asked him about a hypothetical plan or a fund for reparations for African Americans. (laughs) And in his opinion, a fund like that wouldn't be feasible so would or would not would not Mm -hmm. yeah so given his experience he believed it would not be a feasible plan so my question to you is a do you believe that President Lincoln would have
2: supported um, some kind of fund for reparations for the family and descendants Mm -hmm. of slaves Um, and also like do you personally believe that a fund like that um, could or should exist and if so how do you believe it would work
1: so I think Lincoln I mean using the word reparations is as politically charged now as it was then. It was even more charged then. Remember, all the voters are white, uh, which is why Lincoln talked about voluntary colonization in 1862, the year of a congressional election, knowing he was about to issue the Emancipation Proclamation, trying to make it seem like it wasn't a philanthropic act. But I think in his heart... He had a notion of reparations even under different terms. He was um, exploring the idea of land for African Americans. I think he spoke to General Grant and General Sherman at the end of the war about you know, the classic 40 acres and a mule. Um, I think he would have thought, he would have talked to Congress as the more progressive, they call them radical, I don't like that term, the more liberal, the most liberal members of Congress were for breaking up plantation spaces and giving spaces to people who had labored without compensation for generations. So that's kind of reparations. Financial out, financial commitments. I'm not sure he would have supported. The country was spending two million dollars a day on the war at, in the last six months of the Civil War. That's just an enormous expenditure, and there was. Pressure on Lincoln to end the income tax—he'd introduced it. You can imagine how popular it was. And then he, there was an immense pressure. So I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure he could have. Um, he could have supported wide-scale investments beyond. And he also was, but he was interested in education. It's not a reparation; it's a catch-up. But he wanted education for African American students. He wanted. Um, Some people called them carpetbaggers, but he wanted educators to go into the South and establish schools for black children. So did you actually ask me what I think about reparations? I think she did.
0: This is where Harold takes a sharp turn. Or are you going to
1: tell us? Um, Investment. Um, Opportunities for black and women. Own businesses. Um,
0: um, In other words, not money.
1: Well, that's money. I
0: mean, not direct money.
1: It's not direct money, but it's investment in communities that have been disadvantaged and have not been treated equitably. That would be my... See, I'm not as far left as you imagine.
0: How how many children did Abraham
1: Lincoln have? He had four sons, um, two of whom died in his lifetime one or two-year-old who died in Springfield, Illinois, and one his beloved 11-year-old, who I think was most like him, um, who died of typhoid fever in the White House in 1862. And it broke his heart, as one would expect, and broke his wife's heart and spirit, and probably her mental stability as well.
0: When did the third child die?
1: Um... Tad died in 18—the the little one died in 1871, six years after his father, probably of tuberculosis. How old was he? He was 18, and that left the oldest son, Robert, uh, the one you would think he would be closest to, but he was probably the least close, because Lincoln actually sort of had two, two families with one wife— He had Robert and then Eddie, and I think that was their family plan. And then Eddie died, uh, and then Mary became pregnant with Willie, and then sort of quickly had Tad. So it was a a gulf of about um, ten years between Robert and Tad. And um, uh, so he, he went to Congress. He was on the legal circuit. When Robert was growing up, he didn't see that much of him. Lincoln was away from home a lot uh, when he was in Illinois. But in the White House, he got, you know, he, the office was at home. So he spent a blissful one year with Willie and Tad. And Robert was at Harvard, so he didn't see him.
0: How again. tall was he?
1: Six foot four. But that's the equivalent of, I don't know, six, eight, six, nine today.
0: How tall was Mary?
1: We think like five, two. As he said in Indianapolis when he came through, I'd like to introduce you to the long and the short of it. (laughs) That's how he always introduced Mary.
0: Why do we read so much today about their melancholia, their depression?
1: Well, it's fashionable, I guess. But, you know, I once made the mistake of saying... um, There was a book about Lincoln and depression, and a very nice young friend of mine wrote it. Um, And I was... I was asked by the Washington Post to do 10 misconceptions about Lincoln during the Civil War sesquicentennial year. So one of them was that he had, um, that he suffered from real, what we would call depression today. I said most people who were depressed in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s simply ended their life because there was no, um, there was no, psychological counseling, and there was no drug therapy. And, um, and I don't think he could have done what he did and endured the Civil War had he not been functioning. Yeah, he was sad a lot. Uh, you know, Anybody who sacrifices 750,000 people, not sad personally, but in, is responsible ultimately for the deaths of three-quarters three of a million people. If he's not upset about that and depressed about that, he's not human.
0: How many people but were But people
1: pushed back. I was... I've was uh, got enormous criticism from people who were... Who were um, people suffering with depression. Said yes, people endured in the 19th century. They, they got past it. They locked themselves in their room for two days. People took razors away from them as they did with Lincoln. So, sorry.
0: I to no, sir, how many people were there in the United States in 1861?
1: Twenty million.
0: And who could vote for either any presidential candidate in the year that he won?
1: White men. In some cases, white men with property. But well, white men. Uh, every I mean, talk about where Lincoln was on the spectrum of human rights. The year that he won New York State, 1860, there was a referendum for universal suffrage for people of color. It lost four to one. Illinois voted overwhelmingly not only to not allow black people to vote, but to not allow black people to enter Illinois. That was a referendum. No immigration into Illinois by free blacks. It's a tough time.
0: I think this crowd would enjoy uh, the story. You and Edith have had two daughters and two grandchildren, but you have a grandchild named Charles who is into things that I can't imagine most 14-year-olds would be into.
1: He is. He's. I um, hope he's listening. Well, he'll be mad at me if I talk about it. But Charles is, and has been since he was about 12, a uh, theater critic and reporter. He, he was on a, uh, uh, a blog, I guess, called... Um, what is it called, Edith? Broadway, Broadway Kids... So he did theater reviews with two other youngsters, and then he started his own podcast. He's had about 102 episodes of interviews with theater veterans, uh, uh, ranging from Ed Asner, who's no longer with us, um, to Cheetah Rivera, to Harvey Fierstein for his 100th episode, Sheldon Harnick, the composer of Fiddler on the Roof, and he goes to, he's been since the Lockdown was lifted. He's gone to 20 or 30 plays, um, opening nights, dress rehearsals. Uh, so he's, and he's, a vo- he's just written his first chapter in a book at the age of 14 um, <laughs> about the, the, the musical Annie and how it changed children's theater, because it was the first musical about a child for children and adults. He's a great writer but he's also a fourth-generation critic. This is not the Holzer family. This is the Kirsch family. His father is a, a critic and an editor. His grandfather, uh, his paternal grandfather, was a, uh, is and was a book reviewer uh, for the Los Angeles Times and other publications, and his great-grandfather was the daily book critic for the Los Angeles Times. So he's fourth-generation critic. And he's not critical. He's the loveliest young man in in the world.
0: Spoken like a great grandfather. All right. I feel like questions over here. Yes, anybody who's ready to stand up, go ahead. Anybody, please.
2: Hi, my name's Amanda, and nice to see you, Ryan. Uh, My question to you, Harold, is what was your greatest challenge as a writer since you've only written, you know, three books, supposedly? Um, And uh, in your research about Lincoln, what was the hardest piece of information to find out about Lincoln, um, you know, whether it was his personal life, his, you know, career, et cetera?
0: What is the number on the books now, on Lincoln?
1: Uh, 54. Okay. Lincoln and the Civil War. But as I said in the clip, edited and included, edited, and co-author. So the biggest challenge, I guess, was breaking into the field. And I've had um, some conversations with students about breaking into whatever field they're interested in. So, um, And I always talk about mentors. I initiated correspondence with really well-known Lincoln scholars kind of audaciously when I was starting when I was about 19, and they wrote back. And I was asking for advice. How do I, what do I do? I've written this, like, multi-volume biography of Lincoln. I typed it myself. I put pictures in it that I cut out of Life magazine and Look magazine. They said, you know, hold on to that, but find something that no one else has dealt with and see if you can just find a, a niche, which was still possible in the, 70s and 80s in the lincoln world and it's still possible today so that's why i followed their advice and they were great guides the same fellow who gave me that advice published me when i was 25 years old in a journal the hardest thing to find is you know certainty about his marriage Um, i mentioned his relationship to his to his dad and, the, and, and in recent years, that elusive German newspaper. One of the reasons we don't have it is that Lincoln was so happy with this publisher that when he became president, he appointed him to a foreign consulate. And then he told the Illinois State Legislature, I know this isn't honest aid either, to buy every spare copy they could find because the legislature desperately needed back issues of this newspaper, not. I mean, they're old newspapers and they're in German. But he wanted to give the guy a stipend. I think he made him consul to Vienna, which is a nice, nice post. His name was Dr. Theodore Canisius. So he got an extra $1,000 to take with him to Vienna. Buys a lot of strudel, as I've said on the air. So we have no copies. That's, that's what I'd love to find. Next question, please give us your name.
2: Hi, my name's Anna Hampton, and this is an interesting question. Uh, Lincoln's <laughs> life and death has been surrounded in mystery, leading to the creation of many conspiracy theories and rumors. How do you navigate these when communicating with the public? I had to ask a conspiracy theory question. I'm no, sorry. it's good,
1: because, well, because someone always asks about whether the assassination plot was broader and than, it, than we think, and it, was, it, it involved members of his own cabinet and it's, you know, or did Andrew Johnson, I mean, Andrew Johnson couldn't plot anything, so I would exclude <laughs> him from, but no, it's, it, it's I mean, I, I lived through the Kennedy assassination. It's very hard for people to believe that a great or promising life can be snuffed out by a mundane, ordinary angry person. It's just too heartbreaking. So we invent grander things. But w- with Lincoln, it, there's an arc of historiography about that conspiracy. First, it was, um, it was the Confederacy and Jefferson Davis. They did it. Then the free, it was Stanton, the Secretary of War. He wanted Lincoln out because he was too merciful. And then we got rid of that theory in the 1930s. It was the mad booths They were crazy. It was just an attention-seeking nut. The later theory, uh, the current theory, which I think is true, it's the the follow-the-money theory, which is that Booth was an agent of the Confederate government, but that his, his work was done with surrender. But when he heard, when he contemplated the idea of black equality, he just could not bear it. And he thought that if Lincoln first was kidnapped or then killed, the war would restart and we could stop this idea of citizenship and voting rights for blacks. And I think that's what it came down to.
0: Ah, look at all this. Let's go over here,
1: quickly.
2: Hi, uh, good evening, uh, my name is Joshua Steelman. Uh, my question is, uh, what inherent traits of the presidency and the media, respectively, have caused enduring tensions between these two entities throughout US history? Thank
1: you. Sure. Well, the enduring tension is the presidents want the press to say really nice things about them, and the press wants to find cracks in the uh, – I mean, they want the opportunity to cover everything. Uh, Now I think it's more negative than it was earlier. And the president doesn't always want the press there, and the, the press doesn't always want to be nice to the president. So I think that's the inherent tension. They both have different jobs president's job is to lead and sway public opinion and the press's job is to analyze those efforts and report to the public both totally legitimate and they can in in with presidents who have a lot of self-confidence and a lot of skill and press corps that are really smart i think it can happen and fdr is my example he he somehow was convincing enough That no journalist wrote about his physical disability in 12 and a half years of the presidency and I looked everywhere what what agreement was there what and uh, I found reminiscences by two photographers who said you know he had a really tough job and we don't want to make it any harder and so no photographs in a wheelchair no photographs of him being lifted in and out of cars or trains or boats and sort of a news blackout, very generous news blackout. You can say that they didn't do their job, by the way. That's another question.
0: This might be a little awkward, but because these folks have worked so hard about questions, I want you to ask a number of questions. We'll go back and forth, and then we'll consolidate those, and, and uh, Harold can talk about them. What's your question, please? <laughs>
2: Hi, uh, my name is Ruby. Uh, thank you for uh, hosting this. It's giving me a chance to actually talk to people that I see in television. But um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, my question is, uh, what do you think Abraham Lincoln will handle the Ukraine crisis uh, if he's still alive? And, uh, or what do you say um, if he, he, he's still alive? Well, he will comment on White House uh, decision about Ukraine or any of these uh, diplomacy uh,
0: affairs. Hold on to that. We'll go over here. Next, next question. I should
2: write uh, them down. Uh, okay. My name is Raymond Tan, and uh, I was going to ask about um, President Lincoln's personal um, moral incentive for the abolition of slavery as well. It's actually something I disagree with my uh, U.S. history professor, and he's my mentor currently. I love him dearly. but
1: So the moral I, in, imperative? Right. Moral? Uh,
2: he believed that... Um, the choice for the 13th Amendment and um, the abolition of slavery in the North was a smart political move. And ultimately, his goal is that it plays uh, in helping the Union win the war. And that was his first and foremost priority. And that he's willing to make compromise with the Confederates and the South for, to achieve that goal as well. And I, yeah, and since we already touched on that a little bit, I also want to ask about your... Um, actually, goes to both of you, Brian as well. your thoughts on the concept of civil dissent and as we were taught that civil dissent is a very important part of democracy and it's the greatest motivator of social progress but what like where do you draw the line between good social um, discourse and full-scale riots or you know things that we see like the January 6th insurrection?
1: Thank you. Are, you really, are we
0: really going to consolidate everything? We are. We're going You're to going to remember them, now. huh? But I want to hear what they have to say, and then we'll, we'll get to this done. Okay. Go ahead.
2: Uh, hello. My name is Nick Thompson. So um, abolition appeared to be a popular movement in the North before the Civil War, and yet the Civil War revealed that most Northerners were not too opposed to slavery. So, to what degree exactly was abolitionism popular enough to be influential in presidential elections prior to the Civil War?
0: We could stop there for a moment just before you can catch up. (laughs) Um, You want to do Ukraine first?
1: Yeah. David Donald was once asked, um, the great Lincoln historian, and American historian, what would Abraham Lincoln have thought of, what would he have said about school busing? And uh, David Donald replied, he would have said, what's a bus? (laughs) Lincoln left foreign policy completely to his Secretary of State. But he did talk about the hypocrisy of Russia in one letter. Um, and he thought Russia was guilty of moral hypocrisy in everything it did. That's the only application I can think. But he had no foreign... There was, the only foreign policy Lincoln had was, don't start a conflict because I can't handle problems at the front door and the back door. We, even if you're humiliated by Britain, don't have a conflict. So they, he just couldn't direct anything in foreign policy. He sent letters to potentates. He accepted gifts. So was, was Ukraine a country in 18... I'm not even, I don't even think it was on the map. My family is... My ancestors are from... One set of ancestors is from Ukraine. But if we, if we asked, where, where are you from? They never said Ukraine. They said Galicia, because that was the region. Because the borders were so malleable. So anyway, I don't think he would have said, what's a Ukraine?
0: Back to the morality issue and whether, and whether Lincoln, what was pushing him to do 13, 14, Yeah, I don't want
1: to start a fight between you and your professor for sure, but <laughs> I, I think, I believe Lincoln when he said he was morally opposed and appalled by slavery. He saw enslaved people, he said like fish on a trot line, chained together. Marching off to servitude, he saw enslaved people walking by his home in Indiana. They would—he lived on the on the National Trail—and he was so he was horrified by it, um, and wanted it to end. What he was tortured by is what constitutional power he had, and he had none. He concluded, so the compromise at the very the compromise idea at the beginning of his presidency it is before Fort Sumter was I am not going to interfere with slavery where it already exists I may even agree to choke off debate until you know the 20th century but I will not allow it to extend because if it goes to the West it will be there forever and state governments will form that are pro-slavery the Senate and the House will be perpetually dominated by the slave power so that was political but once the shots were fired at fort sumter i think he knew that he would find a way to end slavery so yes of course he always couched it as saving the union because that was a popular concept you couldn't sell people on early in the war on dying for the benefit of black people you just couldn't and the the young man who asked whether abolition was a popular movement no it was a fringe movement i mean i might get a kickback a pushback on that but i don't I don't think it was a popular movement. It, it was, you know, they were they were mob attacked in Boston. Garrison was attacked in his own allegedly enlightened home city. Um, newspapers attacked all over the country, in Illinois and Washington, D.C. It was a moral force, but very, you know, being pro-abolitionist was was way out there before Lincoln's presidency. But I do believe he believed in... Seizing the opportunity as commander in chief to issue the proclamation at long last to get it done. But the 13th Amendment, he didn't have to do to win the war. That was pure moral
0: leadership. What percentage of the vote did he get in
1: 1861? 39.8,
0: 1860. I'm sorry. Yeah. But a lot
1: of electoral votes in 1860. Lowest in history? Uh, No. Adams was lower in his uh, his victory over Jackson. Matt, J-Q-A.
0: Yeah. We're, we're running out of time. We're going to end this in just a few minutes at 7.30. So go ahead, Matt, with your question. My name is Matt Stockler. My question is, uh, given your understanding of Lincoln and his politics and thought,
2: um, what do you think he would say about modern modern politics and the polarization and partisanship
0: today? Hold hold on to that. Hold on. Let's go over here quickly. Hi, my name is, Oh, gosh. <laughs> Hi, my name is Grace. Um, thank you for being here tonight. Um, so my question is... Lincoln is always considered by historians, like, to be, if not the best, one of the best presidents in the United States. Number one. Yep, he's, yeah, normally number C-span one. C-SPAN poll. Sometimes, one. sometimes I see George Washington in some arguments, but consistently Lincoln. And consistently, Andrew Johnson is the last in
2: these lists. Um, and he, Andrew Johnson was his vice president. So uh, could
0: you talk about the thought process that Lincoln had in making Andrew Johnson, who had such different beliefs as him, sure. as his vice president?
1: We're doing both. What yeah, was this yeah. one again? I'm sorry. Uh, quick, uh, <laughs> Matt, give it. Quick, give us a reminder. Just to remind me.
2: Yeah. So my question was just, um, what, what do you think Lincoln would say about it. modern politics? Got it. The oh, yeah.
1: So he would have said, oh, this again. I mean, this is what I went through. This is typical American rowdy partisan politics, and that's that goes into the limits of dissent. Lincoln believed in dissent until there was a rebellion. Rebellion was a bridge too far. So it's like a riot writ larger than, than a riot. And he was very anti-violence, anti-any anti kind of riots, lynchings, um, uh, attacks on newspaper editors, hangings. He's on record against um, all of that. Um, Lincoln, there's no direct evidence that Lincoln chose Andrew Johnson. I think he wanted Johnson. But in those days, the, presidents, the presidential candidates didn't pick their vice presidents. Uh, In 1860, they chose a a guy from Maine because he seemed the complete opposite of a guy from Illinois. You know, northeast, west, as it was Indiana and Illinois were west in those days. And uh, I think Lincoln wanted a Democrat, and he wanted the only loyal southerner in the Senate, and that was Andrew Johnson. And guess what? Presidents don't expect they're going to die. In fact, they refused to Look at FDR. He was practically... He was dying when he ran for the fourth time.
0: Okay, we just have a couple minutes. We need thanks, Grace.
2: Uh, hi, Harold. So hi. I was wondering. Um, you touched on it briefly, but uh, Lincoln's mental health. So he, he, there's no doubt he suffered a lot in his life. And I was wondering because I read a passage studying for the SAT um, <laughs> uh, about this and uh, he's described as melancholic as you said mm-hmm. and which in modern terms is clinical depression so uh and and even grant too succeeding him uh, had problems with alcoholism so i was wondering how did these challenging moments in his uh life influence his policy as president and how um have there been any politicians since lincoln that have had similar uh, early experiences influenced their uh, presidential policy?
1: Wow, that's a complicated question. Yeah, I think his, his sympathy, his, um, his empathy, was influenced by his own struggles and his struggles to overcome. Mel- I'll accept melancholia. That's a good middle ground. Um, it made him sympathetic to people who didn't have parents, to widows and orphans of the Civil War era. He was, by the way, one of the great condolence writers of his era, wrote at least three classic letters of sympathy to people who had died. So it made him sort of, that's why they called him Father Abraham in his time.
0: Becca, quick question.
2: Hi, um, yeah, my name's Becca. Hi. Um, I'm going to switch gears and ask you a bit more of an anecdotal question. How did you two meet, and how has this friendship grown so much as we have seen.
1: We're not friends. (laughs) (laughs) Never been friends. He asked me to be on book notes. I said really what an opportunity and I got to meet Brian Lamb and we we did become friends and I've been very lucky to have him as a friend and Victoria as a friend and I missed him. I haven't seen you for two years. It's
0: worked out okay that we've been able to I really actually, all the interviews I did on books, kept seeing the name Alexis de Tocqueville pop up. I saw the name Lincoln-Douglas debates pop up. And whenever I saw that, I said, well, why are these people writing about all this? And I walked into a bookstore one day, and on the top of a file cabinet was a book by Harold Holzer, Lincoln-Douglas debates. And I said, you know, I don't know anything about the Lincoln-Douglas debates. so. We called him up and asked him if he'd do an interview, and that's when it started, in 1993. And he, if you get on the C-SPAN archive that Robert Browning here, professor at Purdue, invented, uh, you'll find that he has had, how many, Andrea?
1: 179. <laughs> We're not
0: counting, we though, looked. are we, Harold? Andrea looked it up before we started. 179 different videos that he's appeared on uh, over the years, in the last 30 years on C-SPAN. So it's been a tremendous Experience for me I knew nothing about any of this so thanks to Harold
1: and by the way that C-SPAN survey I know someone said Washington the C-SPAN survey is like the most respected survey of historians um, it's every transition
0: every transition yeah
1: and Andrew Johnson was the lowest rated again and I think I may be responsible for that. <laughs> so, I mean, there are a lot of us. We don't know how many. He never tells us how many historians. But they got to the question, you know, rate, we, you rank the presidents from 1 to 10. So ranking President Trump, ability to communicate. I mean, I can't, I can't say he couldn't do that. I think he's one of the best at that. So, you know, I, I deducted a little bit because it wasn't always the truth. But you've got to give them an eight or a nine.
0: I do want to say, before Andrea comes up and says something, I want to say, that if you think that the youth of America don't get it, just think about tonight. Think
1: they are about great. these
0: fabulous questions. And by the way, they were not schooled on how to ask these questions. Nobody fed these questions to them. They're entirely on their own. And I want you to give them a big hand. And as much as it hurts, let's thank Harold Holzer.
2: (laughs) Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at (laughs) c-span.org.